0: This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, what do I look like coming in my bag full of records? A friend of mine just <laughs> brought me some records over from Glasgow, so I daren't trust them to the author tent, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> Welcome, thanks for coming along. What a great day it's been, huh? Jeez. Nice to come in from the heat. Um, <laughs> it's lovely to see so many of you here, and will you please welcome Viv Albertine? <laughs> and um, I think, Viv, you're going to start with a little reading from the book? Okay. Yeah. Is it no? We better tell them. Is it called Close Music Boys or is it called Close 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 Music 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 Boys Boys Boys?
1: Close Close Music 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 Boys Boys Boys. <laughs> not, not for the paperback. I know, but that was for Smiths and Sainsburys.
0: <laughs> it's, it's
1: being dropped oh. now. That cover. It did well in you Smiths. And yeah, they thought it was too radical to repeat a repetitive words. God, good look, good job they didn't look in it. Anyway. <laughs> so I'm just going to read. I just chose this one because um, it was the Slits, the band I was, the punk band I was in, first ever gig, and it happened to be in Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Playhouse, and uh, we had never played live before. <laughs> Those were the days, and um, so for a warm-up gig, we charged into a pub in North London and pulled the boys off stage, we were playing some blues, and uh, plugged our guitars in and got through about five chords before we were pulled off again, <laughs> so that was our warm-up gig. But... Um, yeah, we, we're a pretty wild bunch. So this is—we're on the White Riot tour, the Clash were headlining, Subway Sect. You know, it's really, really great, great fun and everything. But this is the first gig we drove up for, supporting the Clash. I'm going out with Mick Jones, who's the guitarist in the Clash. We met at art school, and uh, there are hundreds—it's full, hundreds of people. So I count in the first song: one, two, three, four, and off we go, careening through. Let's do the split, and I'll shit on it as fast as we can, as fast as we can play it. Mick Jones explains to me later on in the tour that when you shout one, two, three, four, you're setting the speed of the song. (laughs) I don't know this. I've copied it off the Ramones LP. And I I just think it's a warning to the band that you're starting and and it's to be (laughs) shouted as fast and loud as possible. So I do every song like that. One, two, three, four. We all play at different speeds. (laughs) Ari screams, I thrash at my guitar, Pomolive smashes the drums, the stage is so big and Tessa's so far away I can't even hear what she's doing. There's roaring and squealing and air rushing and heat like we've all been hurled into the mouth of a volcano. We all play the song separately at our own speeds. (laughs) We know we should play together, but we can't. I hope that if I remember my part and the others remember theirs, with a bit of luck, we'll all end up at the same time. That doesn't happen. (laughs) Palmolive is the last, still clattering away obliviously. The rest of us glare at her until she looks up, realises we've finished, gives the side tom a couple more thumps and stops. (laughs) What do they for? (laughs) On to shoplifting. A hail of spit rains down on us throughout the set. Great gobs of phlegm land in my hair, my eyes and on my guitar neck. My fingers slide around as I try to hold down the chords. I look over at Ari and see spit land in her mouth as she sings. I don't know if she gobs it back out or swallows it. I have to look down at my hands or I'll lose my place. Then a skinhead jumps up and tries to pull Ari off stage. I stop playing, unplug my guitar and hit him over the head with it. <laughs> this is every gig. Olive punches him. She's a good fighter. The bouncers haul him off by his collar, blood dripping down his face. <laughs>
0: Um, who was at that gig? <laughs> yeah. Who spat? <laughs> Funny, nobody, spat. nobody remembers spitting <laughs> at gigs. I, was, I saw the Ramones play Edinburgh, uh, I think it was 78, and I just thought it was the most revolting thing. And they said, you know, after two minutes, they said, look, please stop spitting or we're leaving the stage. And people did. Um, yeah, we didn't because so
1: we were girls. We thought we're not going to be all like, oh, don't spit or we we'll leave the stage. So we were about the only band who stood there through it.
0: And then after, after your set, you say this in the book, after you did your, your set, you, you hold charge to the front of the stage uh, in the audience yeah. to watch Subway set. Yeah. And people in the audience to to go, weren't they in the band? Yeah. It wasn't no a done thing at the time. You
1: know, in those days, bands, musicians, you know, they were, they were like gods and they were on stage and then they went backstage and did whatever. And, and you know, they never became part of the audience. In fact, spitting actually wasn't to say we hate you. It was to say we're part of you. It was like touching you in a way. So, um, you know, it wasn't a derogatory thing, really. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so for us to even jump in the stage. But, you know, when you think of it all that audience will have never, ever seen before a girl play drums or a girl play guitar, electric guitar. When you, you, know, you think back to those days, and even though they'd been to lots of gigs before, and I've been going to gigs since I was 13, never seen a girl play electric guitar, never seen a girl behind a drum kit. So, I mean, they, they were shocked at even just that, hmm. let alone a racket that came and, you know, the fighting and the... Sometimes we'd be fighting each other, sometimes skinheads and stuff. And you couldn't be done for GBH. Well, no one went to the police in those days. You know, We got stabbed and attacked on the streets of London especially. We never went to the police.
0: No, I mean, there's, there's several instances of Ari being attacked. Yeah,
1: Ari was stabbed twice. I mean, she was 14 and 15. But was, we, we looked so threatening to the status quo, and to the skinheads, and to the teddy boys, and everyone, you know, everyone hated us, even the feminists. We got letters from Sweden. Swedish <laughs> feminists who hated us as well. So, uh, yeah, but we never got done.
0: And Ari would have been what, about 15 at the time of the White Riot?
1: 15, yeah. She so should have been at school. Yeah. But, um.
0: Uh, yeah, it was also, your, uh, you say in the book that it was the, the, the Edinburgh gig, the Playhouse gig, was the first time you'd stayed in a hotel.
1: So, yeah, first <laughs> time so in a hotel. Although we were told that, um, when they saw us... Well, first of all, Larry spat on the floor as soon as we got in the, into the reception. Clearing when they, a throat, I would have thought. Yeah. When they saw what we looked like, they said uh, that you're not staying in the hotel. They called Don over, who was managing us, and said that they're not staying in the hotel. You know, there was a clash there, subway said all the scruffy boys, but it was the girls who were re- the real rebels, actually. Uh, they, and So in the end... They got bribed and they said, okay, they can stay in the hotel if they go straight from the front door to the lift and we don't see them again until they leave. They're not to come to the bar, they're not to come to the restaurant, we're not to see them in the corridors. Changed days. Every hotel was like that. Changed and then he rang ahead, ran ahead, ran ahead to every hotel on the tour sheet and warned
0: them. Let's go back a bit then from, from your, your gig in Edinburgh, your first big um, gig on the tour. Let's go back to, I mean, Mick Jones was, was, you know, was, a, was a, an influence, a friend. He was a friend, but he was there when you bought your first guitar.
1: Yeah, so me and Mick met at art school. He wasn't in the Clash. All I saw was him on the uh, payphone every day down in the hall. I thought he must be splitting up with a girl or something, but he was trying to organise rehearsals, you know. And uh, so I sort of learned through him how to put a band together. Not that for one minute I thought of putting a band together, but I was just watching him, you know, seeing what he did. I was mad about music as well. But it wasn't until I saw the Pistols that I made that leap, you know, I was literally tr- having to think in a different dimension because I'd never seen a girl bl- play guitar mad about music as I was. I-, I couldn't make the mental leap that I could do it. Plus, I wasn't musical and I couldn't play. I hadn't had any, you know, it's not like now where all kids have music lessons and it's a cool thing. I mean, you either played recorder or flute, and if you played those, <laughs> you are a twat. And, uh, you know, or you didn't, didn't do it. You know, it's not like they played contemporary songs in, in, in music. So... Yeah, so I, it wasn't until I saw the pistols and I saw there was someone like me, a boy from a you know, working class background who lived in a council flat in North London, went to comprehensive school, all the same as me, but he was a boy. But somehow that one thing I managed to, I managed to make the leap mentally that night when I saw them.
0: And you got some money from was it a grand? Was it your grand when she died left you some money? Two hundred quid. And you thought I can get I'm going to buy a guitar. Yeah, I thought. So you go down a to a music Not to a
1: motorbike tro- or a guitar. All
0: right. <laughs> so you got uh, you got um, what, somewhere like Denmark Street, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, you know I mean?
1: Denmark yeah. Street. Yeah, the big. Shop on the corner and went in there with Mick because I, I couldn't even hold a guitar. I'd never held a guitar in my life. He had to come put a cord together, nothing. So he went in to buy it for me. And at first, they thought, of course, he was buying it for himself. And he wondered why he kept saying, Do you like that one or do you like that one? And I felt such a fool, you know. I, said, oh, I prefer the red one. <laughs> <laughs> and why is there no mirror in the shop? <laughs> I can't see what it looks like <laughs> against me. <laughs> so I didn't know it, but I was a, a true good point. rock and rocky. So um, in the end, yeah, we got um, a little Gibson Les Paul Jr., which was a beautiful choice um, from Mick. And uh, I ended up being a Telecaster girl, but that was a good first guitar.
0: And there was, I mean, not every wannabe guitarist um, has a friend who's a guitarist like Keith Levine. Who yeah. he'd known since what, since he was about 14? I'd
1: known Keith since he was 14. He was just this little spotty little kid from Southgate, you know, hanging around much younger than the rest of us. But actually, he was a super sensitive boy and he played guitar. But the thing is, he played guitar. His favorite guitar player was that guy in Yes, Chris Squire. Um, so, you know, he wasn't like a cool guitarist, but he was a very sensitive person. He was a bit of a virtuoso. Um, couldn't have Mick teach me anything to, you know, that was too bad tempered. And as I say in the book, once you shagged a guy, they never want to teach you anything anyway. <laughs> so I hadn't shagged Keith and he was a bit in awe of me. So he kept coming around every day.
0: <laughs>
1: Much to Mick's annoyance. And um, yeah, so, you know, he, he said, I'm not going to show you chords, which really floored me. Because, of course, I thought, oh God, you know, if he's not going to show me chords. But he said, no, I think you should try and express yourself through the guitar because he's very esoteric, Keith. Um, so in the end, I started, you know, making terrible noises, trying to f- trying to sound like um, a mosquito or a drill or something, you know. But it, it stood me in good stead, because in the end, I, I worked out my own guitar style, you know. Whereas if I'd been taught the chords, but, I would have... Well, we were determined, the Slits, not to play 12-bar blues and all it, that. It
0: was slow progress, though, wasn't it? I mean, the neighbours weren't terribly happy.
1: No, no, the neighbours, who were quite cool, who worked behind the bar at Dingwalls, where I'd worked um which was a club in london told me viv They <laughs> came around specifically you know like an intervention and said viv you know please stop you're, you're you're a good person but you're no good at this and uh you know you're clever i'm sure there's other things you're really good at and, and i was a very sensitive person but um for some reason i didn't stop i wouldn't stop you know it's the first thing i think i'd ever really wanted in my life
0: it was when you were working at Dingwalls, you were working behind the bar there, and you saw a band called Kokomo, yeah. where, and most people will have forgotten these days. Yeah. But there was a um, a, a woman on percussion, right? Yeah, yeah. And that, you suddenly went, oh, right, oh, so...
1: It was that bad. I mean, when I was buying records from very young and I used to scan the back of the record covers, you know, just looking for a girl's name and it would always be something like, right at the bottom, and thanks and love to my girlfriend Jasmine or, you know, the two backing singers or so-and-so from Island Records. Um, And so I would always try to think, how could I place myself in this amazing world, you know, this world of music? never occurred to me to be a musician. I saw Kokomo when I was working behind the bar and I just saw this girl... I didn't know the girl at first because everyone had such long hair then but she was, you know, banging away and um, and someone said to me, Oh yeah, her name's whatever it was, Jodie, I think. And um, she can't even play, you know, she's just picked it up. And that sparked a little light in my head. Definitely. So you know, when you have a sort of Eureka moment, it's never this one thing, Oh, it's the night I saw the pistols, oh it's the night day, I bought my guitar, I saw Jodie from Kokomo. But all these things were coming together.
0: Patty Smith sources.
1: Yeah, Patty Smith, you know. When I, when I saw a picture of Patti Smith in the music press, I thought, my God, this, this woman looks extraordinary. There's a few lines written about her. I rushed to HMV the day that um, her record came out, Horses, and met Mick Jones outside. And we both said, what are you doing here? So before we went out with each other. And um, we'd both come to t- buy horses. And I rushed home, missed college, and I just thought, please God, let the music be what the cover, you know, is promising. Because on the cover was someone, a girl... Which I would never seen before, who looked like a boy and girl rolled into one, and I thought it was the first. I thought, "Oh my God, that's my insides made visual." It's the first time I'd, you know, sometimes someone says something or does something, and you think, "Yeah, that's how I feel," and that's how I felt when I saw that cover of Patti Smith. I thought, "My God, that's like my soul made into a picture." And then I put the music on, and and the other extraordinary thing was how she let go. We've never heard, you know, you'd heard "Je T'aime." Or a few sort of sexual records, joke records almost, before, come outside. I don't know <laughs> if any of you are old enough to remember that one.
0: Judge <laughs> <But> Dredd.
1: <laughs> Is it Judge Dredd? No, oh, he did a version from, um, of it. Sorry?
0: He did a version of it. Did he?
1: Oh, right. Yeah. Anyway, so yes, yeah, so, but to hear her really let go with a voice, and it was, you know, she'd mount, and it would be almost be sexual, you know, building and building, orgasmic. Um, and honestly, in the 70s, everyone thinks the 70s are so cool and it was like orange and brown fabrics and white curvy <laughs> plastic furniture. But it was actually like the 50s, morally. And um, you, girls, and I went to comprehensive school, art school, and I didn't think you were allowed to make a noise when you had sex as a girl. And I didn't think a nice girl looked like she enjoyed sex. So to hear Patty Smith let go again, as if she was half boy, half girl. One minute be submissive, next minute be dominant. You know, absolutely free with her voice, and her sort of sexuality was was you know really, really, oh, I don't know, gobsmacking for me. I couldn't believe it. You know, and, and that sort of, so it sort of loosened me up in that way as well, making me think differently about sex and what I was allowed to do and express.
0: And at some point, you decide you're going to get a band, um, you're going to be in a band, and they're going to be called Flowers of Romance. Mm. Uh, which, of course, was later an album by Pill. Yeah, Um, because
1: Johnny Rotten thought of the title. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Flowers of Romance. Uh, So how did that come about, and who was in the band?
1: So basically, I was walking down Portobello Road with Mick Jones, who's my boyfriend. We were holding hands, and I I saw Johnny Rotten coming towards me. I'd only seen him a few times. It was only such a small scene that, you know, it was like we all knew each other, really, a little bit. And Johnny Rotten and this other spiky-haired bloke was coming towards us, and I quickly let go of Mick's hand because it was very, very sort of not the done thing to be romantic and show it in public. It was, you know, sexuality was very cold and calculated and laughed at. And when I think back, it's probably because the boys were all so young and, you know, inadequate probably that, you know, it was like that playground mentality of sex, squelchy, that kind of thing. So I dropped his hand and... Um, And I'd just been given that 200 quid from my grandma. And um, I said, I'm going to buy a guitar. I sort of barged into the conversation halfway through and said, I'm going to buy a guitar and I'm going to form a band. And this other spiky boy said, I'll be in a band with you. (laughs) And uh, this is another revelation. Again, you know, it's so hard to put it into context. But there was a sort of silence because he was obviously incredibly cool. I didn't think of myself as particularly cool. But... No one had ever thought of girls and boys being in a band together before. I mean, you had it in folk bands, you know, where the girls played violin, but they were sort of very feminine, or they were warbling away, the singers, you know. But they sort of wore dresses and long hair and everything. But for a spiky-haired boy and a spiky-haired girl to be equals in a band, you know, she wasn't the singer. It suddenly, you know, John was standing there with the pistols, and Mick was standing there with the clash, and suddenly they looked kind of bit old-fashioned. Me and Sid are going to be in a band, and, um, and Mick was sort of grumbling on the way home, you know, you don't want to hang out with him, he's John's mate, he's not all right in the head, you know, but um, yeah, so that was carried on being a bit of an argument for the next year or so, but so it's another, you know, but Sid, Sid, it was Sid, a time Sid, of sort of revelation. I mean, really. Sid Vicious
0: had decided he was going to play saxophone. Yeah. I just knocked me out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, because I said to him, what do you play? And he said, saxophone, and then... <laughs> Johnny Rotten went <laughs> like that. <laughs> because it actually, it didn't matter. I hadn't even bought my guitar yet. It was so great, you know. We just looked good and thought, yeah, I'll be in a band with you. You know, um, Paul Simonon was recruited for The Clash because he looked great. So. It was just such a lovely free time. It was like a little crack opened up in the world, you know, in our little world. Suddenly, I didn't have to be a primary school teacher or a police cadet or, or, you know, or nothing sign on for the rest of my life. Suddenly, it didn't matter I didn't play. It it didn't matter that I I wasn't musical. It didn't matter I was a girl. Just a little crack for a moment and shot through it. And I just think I'm waiting for the next time that happens. I think the internet almost made that happen again, actually, Mm. a bit, which is why I came back.
0: There's a, there's a lovely line um, in the book from Johnny Thunders because Johnny Thunders shortly after this turns up in London and he's, uh, he you quote him I think saying rock and roll is simply an attitude you don't have to play the greatest guitar
1: no Johnny actually turned out to be more punk than the punks we we, we were a bit sniffy about him in some ways we thought we all idolized him because of that New York dolls but at the same time his hair was a little bit long and he was a little bit dapper and his clothes were a little bit too good, you know, black spotty shirt and, you know, it, he wasn't rough enough and um, he, was, he looked old. I mean, God, he must have been 23 or something. <laughs> 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 he looked old. Um, so he was ravaged by the drugs, I suppose. But yeah, so we didn't take too much notice of him. But in retrospect, he, he was a true punk. He wasn't acting it, And Sid turned out to be quite a sort of little careerist underneath mm-hmm. it all. So yeah. Is that, I mean, there
0: is a, a this, the, the version of, of Sid Vicious that we get in this book is actually, I think, a very moving portrait of somebody who, again, I think you say it somewhere, that, you know, he started to kind of live up to the... Try and, you know, people were sort of putting their dreams on him. Yeah. And he started to kind of overact or exaggerate to yeah. try and reflect what they wanted him yeah, to be. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, people say, oh, it's a very, you know, 3D portrait of Sid. Never seen any of these people portrayed in that way before. I certainly didn't set out to sort of do a nice 3D portrait of Sid or John or any of them. But I just thought, I'm only going to write about what I know. If I was in the room then I'll write about it. If I wasn't in the room and it was something I heard or gossip or whatever, then it's not going in the book. So if I witnessed something, I thought, then I can talk honestly about it. Okay, my memory may have distorted it, but that's fair enough. But Because I didn't know if people would come back to me. I knew Sid couldn't, obviously, but, you know, and say, oh, that wasn't how it happened or whatever. But, mm. um, yeah, I just thought I had, I had the right to say it if I was in the room. And not only in music times, but also later in my life, because... I said to the publisher straight away, I said to Sabre, look, almost everything in this book is going to be a bit contentious. You you must agree now to me to not start saying, oh, we can't have that in, we can't have that in, because a lot of things that happened to women and happened to me over those decades happened behind closed doors. They had their sort of muffled threats or things putting you down, you know, in the bedroom or in the kitchen, or, you know, and people expecting you not to say them again because you look ridiculous. Well, I got to a certain age where I didn't care anymore. I mean the book sort of overtook me <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, I didn't care if I looked ridiculous but I, I felt I, I'm not going to be silenced you can't silence me so they agreed that straight away which was, which was great I'm, I wouldn't have signed with them if they didn't I'm very
0: conscious we've not even got to the slits oh. yet um, I, it's my <laughs> fault not yours I'm, I, I, um, but the one thing there's something right at the beginning of the book it's, yeah, that I was going to bring up um, anyone who writes an autobiography is either a twat or broke <laughs> I'm a bit of both <laughs> um, what made you write the book?
1: Oh, I don't know. People kept saying, oh, write a book about punk. I just couldn't. I was so not interested in writing a book about punk. I'd been through hell and back since punk, you know, which was a couple of years of my life. And I couldn't think of anything duller, really. Um, uh, But it wasn't until I picked up the guitar again in my 50s after not touching it for 25, 30 years. And, and the same things were being said to me. Oh, you're too old, there's too young then. Too old, you're, you're a girl, um, no one's doing it. You're a mother, you're a this, you're a that. You can't play, you can't sing. It was huge deja vu. And I suddenly saw this sort of arc, in a way. I thought, you know, i I'd done filmmaking. I, I've written scripts and things, did a degree in film. So I thought I knew about narrative arcs. And I thought, now oh, that makes a shape. You know, I sort of saw it like a rainbow, you know. Start where you pick up a guitar when you shouldn't when you were 19. And then you come to that point when you pick up the guitar again when you're 52. And both times were so wrong. <laughs> and I knew in my heart it was wrong both times. But there was something in me that just went be, just beyond my self-consciousness, be, beyond hmm. society's expe- expectations, and did it anyway.
0: Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the slits and that the end of side one. Um, <laughs> You know, they'd approached you and you you weren't sure about joining this band.
1: Yeah, because it was a very small scene and there was these bunch of girls running around in plastic um, bin bags (laughs) with belts around them and bits of paint daubed on their faces. And one in particular, which was Ari, who was 14 then, would be screaming her head off all the time. And partly, you know, so they said, Do you want to be the bass player in our band? Well, first of all, I didn't want to be in an all-girl band. I, I just, you know, I, I sort of thought I was feministically beyond that. Yeah, we've gone beyond that, you know, I just don't have to be in the tokenistic band. And partly, um, they just looked stupid. Um, so I said no. Um, and then I went to see them play their first gig, sort of interested in what they were like. And... They just blew me away. I mean, Ari was on stage. She had this wild hair. She was completely, whereas she's too big a character off stage, she was fantastic. She was made for the stage. She had this old dirty Mac on, which she kept flashing open. I don't even know if she was, knew she was looking like a flasher. And then she had sort of pants over her, black trousers, and they were quite childish pants, with sort of a superhero on them or something. And she was, she was utterly free. And I, I looked at her and I thought, my God, there is a lead singer who can challenge Johnny Rotten because me and Sid always used to say if you can't be in a band as good or different to the pistols don't bother and i wish young people today would think the same thing you know if you can't be good or better or more you know or different to what's going on now please don't bother <laughs> stay in your room <laughs> but yeah we were so strict on each other at the time which i think is why we made something that lasted you know, nowadays people hate criticism. I've said a few things which I probably shouldn't have said on Twitter and that. And um, you know, the bands get all super sensitive. But we were horrible, horrible to each other. You know, right down to which chord you used, which word you used, what accent you used it in, what clothes you wore, what records you had. So anyway. Yeah, so I said no, saw them play live, absolutely loved them, rang them up the next day, at Ari's mum's, and said, um, oh, I thought you were brilliant last night, you know, loved if you ever, you know, want to jam sometime, not that I, any of us could jam, um, and, and apparently when they put the phone down, they went, like, oh, now she's interested. Anyway, we got together, we played together, and we just gelled and because I'd worked with Sid and it was so awkward and so awful and nothing was ever done, we rehearsed for a whole summer and never wrote a song, <laughs> never played live. But still everyone thinks about this gig, which is totally... This get band, which is so punk in a way. But, um, so I knew when me and Ari wrote well together how precious that was, actually. So if I hadn't had the bad experience with Sid, I wouldn't have known that.
0: Mm. And you'd said quite early on that you were going to approach... or No, you weren't going to approach. You were going to record an album for Ireland. yeah. Who at that time were mostly known, I guess, for reggae and John Martin.
1: Yeah, because in Amsterdam, I'd gone to see this gig by a band called Bronco, and I'd fallen in love with the singer's voice, I thought it was amazing. So I tracked it, d- tracked down his records, and through, through tracking down his records, then I started to look at other bands and realise that Ireland was like a stable, you know, which wasn't really happening so much back then. You, you know, it was all CBS, EMI, and they would just sign whoever they thought was going to be big. But Ireland had this little sort of coterie of really interesting bands, so I got to know the label, and I just sort of fixated on it, and not then did I think I'd be in a band, but when I came to being in a band, And Ari was mad about reggae, so I managed to persuade her that we were going to track Island down. I mean, we got asked loads of times to sign a deal with just some company who wanted to make a quick buck out of punk. you know. But Mm. we waited two years till we thought we were ready. I think we made a real classic album. That's what we intended. I mean, they
0: they sent you into the countryside to do it with Dennis Bovell (laughs)
1: producing.
0: Dennis Bovell producing. Mm. Um, I mean, it seems like it was ticking all the right boxes.
1: Oh God, that was amazing! Amazing, you know. We were we were shut in this farm in the com- countryside with Dennis Bevel because he, he he was a bit um, he wouldn't turn up on time, so they thought we'll lock Dennis over there. And with these girls, you know, we, actually we were real hard workers. They they misjudged us because we looked so crazy, but we were intensely hard workers. But um, anyway, so we'd go every day into this into this um, barn and the. the um, Booth was up there and they boomed boom down at you, out of time, do it again, do it again, until I was on my knees crying because, you know, we couldn't play, but Dennis is a real fanatic about everything being in time and the he wanted this album to be great and, and he made it so great. It was the best thing you could ask from a producer. There's a lovely
0: anecdote of him just deciding that some, some, one track needs something else and he yeah. just goes and collects bits and pieces and lays them out and he just oh. starts doing a kind of percussion with them.
1: Yeah, yeah, because, you know, Dennis is a true musician. He loves all kinds of music, broad, but he, he was put in prison because... He, of his sound system and in prison he had no instruments so he learned to make music just using his mouth and whatever was in the cell basically so we came to this track we said oh it's just not quite right new town it just needs something some little delicate thing he said leave it to me i'm going downstairs turn all the lights down and you know there's all maracas hanging around and shaking sticks, rain sticks this that and the other he didn't pick up any of them he picked up a box of matches a glass um a spoon i think that was it Mm. And all the way through, he just, you know, he just sort of grooved to the track, and he just ding, <laughs> and then lit the match. And he created a whole rhythm track. I mean, I, I'll get goose now, you know, because you imagine we were all like, what's he going to do? All, all up in, in the booth, looking down at him in the dark, just grooving. And, sort of, and, and it made it sound like um, people cooking up drugs, which was what the track was about. You know, and it, I, don't, I don't really think he intended to although he does say now he intended mm. to but I don't think he intended it to be that because it was just such a spur of the moment thing
0: I've got to ask you about the, um, the cover um, the photograph mm. that wasn't the original that wasn't going to be the original cover was it?
1: No, the thing is we, we did some shots we were topless it, it, when we were all sort of um, bumming around the south of France and Spain and we sort of photographed on top of the top of the bus that we were in and things like that and we thought and the photos were at my mum's house and we had the great idea we'll put one of them on the cover so I rang up mum can you send those pictures we're going to put them on the cover <laughs> anyway she rang me back the next day and said oh Viv something really terrible's happened I've spilt coffee all over the photograph <laughs> they're ruined so I went back to the And said, Oh my God, my mum's ruined the photos. And they were furious. I thought, That's so not like mum. You know, she's so careful about these things. I went back and said, Mum, are they not just rescuable? Sorry, they've all stuck together. They're absolutely ruined. (laughs) So we thought, right, okay, we'll get Penny, Pad, uh, Penny Smith in and we'll do a shoot in the garden and all that. Which, and, you know, a- accidentally we ended up taking our tops off and covering ourselves in mud because a guy from Africa was there showing us how to do loincloths. And, you know, so anyway, anyway, it turns out years later that mum tells me that she deliberately said that and ruined them because she didn't want me topless on the album. <laughs> but, you know, obviously if something's meant to be.
0: Was it car, a, I mean, did it cause a stir at the time? I don't remember.
1: It did cause a stir, yeah. There were things in the paper like um, drivers crashing because they'd seen the poster. <laughs> 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 then That's when we started getting the Swedish, Swedish uh, feminist letters <laughs> as well. But you see, another thing that people don't realise is in the 70s, the only time you saw a topless or a naked woman was in a porn magazine. And that was for men. Um, You know, we we didn't have any live porn, obviously, because we didn't have videos, let alone the internet. And so the only time you'd see live porn is if you went to a live show in Soho or something. So the only time you saw a naked woman was to sell something or for the desire and gaze of men. And we, you know, we were getting very into sort of ethnic music and tribal music. And we thought, you know, obviously looking at pictures of, you know, the Lenny Riffin style pictures of tribes and things and thinking, fucking hell, you know we want to take our bodies back. We want to sort of reappropriate our bodies. Well, why the fuck, you know, are they, the only time we ever see naked bodies are, you know, on the top shelf or whatever, weren't they? Even on the top shelf then, they were on things that just went round in the newsagents. And um, so we we thought, yeah, that's when we were thinking, you know, as we were putting the mud on us, why the fuck can't we do this? So, um, you know, we weren't glamorously naked or anything. We were all lumpen-bodied. Ari's quite pubescent in a way um it was just like three wild girls in a garden slathered with mud and we thought well we have to have a really intense expression in our eyes we have to look really militant and like warriors otherwise it will look like we're here to please you know and sort of titillate so we did that and and you know all the young boys that i've ever met you know whether they're fans or friends or whatever that bought that cover at the time were scared of us (laughs) <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't really sexually arousing. It was scary to see girls like that. they were intrigued. But, you know, the look in the eyes was like, yeah, come on then, if you're hard enough. But that sounds wrong, though. no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, anyway, so, but, you know, even now people say, oh, I didn't get the cover, I thought it was sexist and everything. I think, oh, my God, if you'd have only known what it was like in those times, you know. Mm. But everything we did was just slightly misunderstood, Everything we did was slightly misunderstood. Mm. The slits, which is why why we never sort of.
0: Well, you, you did one album for Ireland, and then uh, they dropped you. You went to CBS, made a second album, and then the band falls apart. I guess Ari got mm. pregnant, and mm. things just. It's
1: been about six or seven years. You know, yeah. that, what I think made it fall apart was Mar- Margaret Thatcher got in, and suddenly the whole of England, Britain, really shifted to sort of being commercial and money making and people started women started getting you know pedicures and manicures and it started being like americans groomed and wanting to earn money and working hard it it was most (laughs) (laughs) un-british and you know that even extended well the music business became very slick suddenly and you know i'd go into cbs and i'd see someone like um Oh, the guy from Wham going in with a briefcase, no guitar, you know, and and no proper meetings, and oh, it just completely changed, and I thought, I don't want to be in this world anymore. I'm not wedded to music, which some people think is, you know, really, really the worst thing you can say. I'm not wedded to music. I'm much more wedded to the message than I am to the medium.
0: So that's end of side one, Mm. and I'm sorry it's taken a long time. It is only half the book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, if that, and we've not touched in your very early life at all, which is also fascinating. <coughs> relationship with your dad, there's tons in this. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, really big story, I think. But let's move on to side two, which um, <coughs> kind of segues nicely from what you've been saying because you then become the what is it you get into? You get into aerobics. Yeah. And you become the only the second teacher of aerobics in the UK. But everyone laughs about this. Well, but it's not. I mean, you know, it's not what I would. It's like saying Sid Vicious playing saxophone.
1: No, but the thing, it, it isn't because yet again, no girls did any sports. You know, there was there was Tessa Sanderson, or um, the one who threw the javelin, mm. and it was Mary Peters. Mary Peters. Yeah, there was a, there was a few athletes. You you know, occasionally saw if they did something amazing on TV. You, you, you know, it's not like now you see girls playing football. You couldn't buy any workout gear. I had to send off to America to get, you know, tights and leotards and stuff to teach. Girls never got sweaty, tied their hair back, had no makeup. You know, you never saw a girl jog. I mean, you didn't see men jog either, really. But, you know, (laughs) everything you take for granted now, gyms, you know, no girl would set foot in a gym. I mean, there was the occasional sort of gym on top of a shop somewhere which no girl would set foot in full of weights. There was was no sport culture for women. Um, So when the aerobics thing happened, I remember reading Jane Fonda saying, you know, this is the first time, you know, girls and women can join in. The first time she went on holidays to the countryside or the lake or whatever, and she was fit enough to join in. I mean, literally, women sat on the side while the men played with the children or or did the sports or went into the sea or... It, it was we, we had no energy about us. We had no life about us. So I was knocked out by aerobics. You know, when the first person class I went to, um, and everyone there's pumping music and everyone was you know jumping. It was, it was the first. She was the first person to ever teach it, and she trained me up to be. I got good and became obsessive she trained me up to be her, one of her teachers you know and we went around doing it and everything um, and I taught in the ballet schools in, in London, central London Covent Garden and bit by bit people stopped go- girls stopped going to the ballet classes and started coming to my aerobics classes and I'd see all the ballet teachers on the window
0: <laughs> <laughs> sneering
1: in at me and not not bad for their legs and I was packed packed in the end I was teaching from huge nightclubs um, you know, I'd have about ten girls on stage who'd learnt my routines and stuff, and we would boo me out, music and reggae and Grandmaster Flash, and it it was it was a revolution again uh, in physicality because I remember when I was younger thinking, oh the boys they roll down the slopes together and they punch each other and they play fight. We didn't do anything physical as girls in the 70s. Again, it was like the 50s. You know, mm-hmm. you didn't make noise in sex. You didn't run about and get sweaty. You, didn't, you know, we didn't see, like, you see footballers fall over, you know, get all muddy, jump up, cry, I'm all right. You know, none of that culture for women. So I just want to, you know, explain that it seems funny, you know, punk rock to aerobics, but... It it's was part, part, the, part of the journey, if you like. It's might, part of the you know. journey,
0: yeah. yeah. But you hadn't given up on... on artistic, you know, creation either, had you?
1: No, I was also, I was going to evening classes because I intended to go to film school because I thought, I, I, I'm just a person who thinks, what's the most interesting thing happening in the world right now? I'm going to try and place myself in it. Now, sometimes it takes me two or three years to get up to speed. So it, it was music. But well, before that, it was like art. You know, I was going to art school. I, you know, I liked art pop art and all that kind of thing then it was music then it was aerobics and then it was films you know 70s film and film criticism was really interesting so i went three years you know retrained you know Sort of lost my identity really and, and went to film school, got into film school, did three years of film school, came out as a director and started directing. You were working away. for
0: the BBC, you were doing adverts? What
1: yeah, not so much adverts. I was doing, well, MTV had just started. I did loads of pop videos and uh, crimes things and, you know, just whatever. You know, as a jobbing director, actually, bit by bit, I forgot that I had any um, creativity in me and I just kind of well, got was, a bit 80s about it.
0: There was one thing that, Kenny, <laughs> there was one thing that jumped out at me, which was that you were going to do a film about female gangs in Scotland? Yes! Start, you know, started to write a film about a girl gang in Scotland. Why, why Scotland? I've written it, well, because my best,
1: best friend, who's still my best friend, was brought up near the Murray Firth, I think it was near there, where they had the oil rigs. Mm-hmm. And... Um, she, she was in a trailer park there and, and she used to tell me all these stories about, you know, they were the first people because the Americans worked on the rigs as well to find out about barbecues and chewing gum and all these, all these things that we didn't hear of in the 70s because we didn't have American culture in our lives. They had on this trailer park um, and so I, I thought it was really an interesting juxtaposition of people, you know, and there was this girl gang that formed on, in the trailer park, and I, I just thought, what, that's a film, that's a great film, a girl gang in the 70s, all dressed in that gear, and they buy their stuff from catalogs, and over-the-knee striped tights, and hot pants, and all that, and, um, you know, in the American influence, so it's called Oil Rig Girls, it's still in my, I still think it'd be a great film.
0: I think it'd be a great film It was well. just,
1: honestly, that far from a green light, mm. and it fell through at the last minute, Yeah. Mm.
0: Are you going to do a little reading for us again? Yep. Um, I don't know what she's going to read. I have no idea. This is going to be a big surprise. <laughs> I'm, scanning, I'm, I'm really rushing through this bit because I want the audience to get some time for questions as well. But oh, we right. did start five minutes late, so we're not going to finish dead on time. If anybody needs to rush out, I apologise. That's
1: fine. Yeah, I won't swear at you. But we're here for a bit. Okay, so this is 2009 and my marriage is well and truly over. I've been married for 16, 17 years, but when I picked up a guitar, it was like, uh, no, if you're going to play guitar, the marriage is over. We'd been through hell, and that was was the breaking point. Anyway, so my marriage is well and truly over, and I can't stop thinking about sex. I'm not usually in the least bit bothered about sex. I can take it or leave it, but suddenly I have an urgent desire to shag someone. And this is for one extremely important reason. I'm sure as hell going to do it before my husband does. So I choose a man who's very keen on me, but more importantly, he's not intimidating in any way physically. He's not handsome or fit. He looks like a minicab driver. (laughs) Actually, he said that about himself, but I do agree. But this is perfect for me. He makes me feel safe enough to give it a go. Dot, dot, dot. The room is dark except for a puddle of light on the floor from the full moon. The glass sliding doors are open and a warm sea breeze wafts around us as we lie together naked, tangled up on the sofa after a fairly successful fuck. I'm off somewhere in my head congratulating myself. Ha, ha, I did it before you, na, 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 na. When the minicab driver interrupts my thoughts. You're very wet. I reach down between my legs and touch myself. I am wet. Not, oh, that was fun and I'm so turned on wet. I'm absolutely soaking. I lift my hand up to have a look. It's covered in blood. Our entwined limbs appear black, pale and luminous in the moonlight and the blood splattered all over our bodies looks black, sticky black blood. It seeps into the sofa cushions and drips down onto the floor like we spilt a tin of molasses over our laps. I jump up and a river of red gushes down my legs. What the hell is happening? We're in the middle of a bloodbath, like the prom scene in Carrie. In my head, I can hear Carrie's mother screaming, the curse of blood is punishment for sin. There's no obvious physical reason why this has happened. It isn't my period, we haven't had rough sex, and he doesn't have a massive cop. So what the fuck is wrong with me? It must be true. This is punishment for having sex without love, punishment for being so shallow, for daring to think I could leave my marriage, go out into the world, and live a liberated artistic life. This is punishment for being a bloody, feisty, witchy woman. And here it is, haunting me again, my old enemy blood, bloody, bloody blood. Always there when you don't want it and never there when you do. I faint nonchalance, calmly excuse myself and walk into the bathroom to take a shower, completely forgetting about the guy covered in red stuff in the living room. (laughs) I turn the water pressure up high. Hot water smashes into my face, pours down my body and erases all evidence of the blood. But even this vicious shower can't obliterate the nagging thought. It can't be, can it? Surely not. Not now. Not now I'm at the beginning of a new journey, striking out on my own. Not after all the risks and courage it's taken me to get this far. Please, God, not return of fucking cancer.
0: Um, yeah, because you, you'd been through the mill uh, to try and have a baby. IVF, what, 13, 14 times or something? Yeah, yes. seven
1: years of IVF. And yeah.
0: selling all your worldly goods to sort of go to Belgium and get special treatment and stuff. But you did did conceive and did have a, a, a beautiful baby. And then three months later, along comes cervical cancer.
1: Mm.
0: It's an extraordinary... I mean, the, the, you, the second half of this book is, a, is quite harrowing. It is harrowing, yeah. That's it, not but it's also a story it. of survival. <laughs> yeah. Somebody who's desperate to survive. yeah. And I love the bit that when you're getting the cancer treatment, you're very claustrophobic, so you don't want to go in the...
1: MRI. ..the scanner.
0: Mm. And how did you cure yourself of that?
1: Yeah, so I, I don't know, you know, probably a few people have been through it, but, you know, they said when I went to have the MRI scan to see how far the cancer had progressed, you know, well, I said, oh, I'm a bit claustrophobic, and they said, well, don't worry, your head doesn't go in. But when, when I went in, and it's a big tunnel... My head didn't stay out. It just kept going in and in. deep. You know, they lied, basically. And I just, oh, my God, it was my worst nightmare. And I, I screamed and pressed the bell that you're given. And they pulled me out. Um, and I thought, my God, my life depends on this. And still, I can't lie in that tube. So I went home. And every night, my husband and I built, like, a cardboard coffin, almost. And bit by bit, we, we brought the... Um, cover of it closer and closer to my face you know every night I went a few more minutes a few more minutes until in the end I could have it over my face for 30 seconds and then another night a minute and and I trained myself to lie in an enclosed space and went back and had the MRI yeah you know even though I had a little girl three three to six months old yeah um, I still... It was, it was terrible. I, and you were very, I, I, you
0: were very weak, of course, from the from the treatment. You felt you were kind of losing your connection. Well, I'd with your had daughter. 13
1: operations for the IVF. I'd had two miscarriages. <laughs> I would baby by caesarean, you know, and then six weeks later they say, oh, you've got life-threatening cancer. We don't know if we can save you. And I just thought, oh God, you know, bring it on then. What, you know, what more have you got? I, I just didn't think my body would be able to take it. And in fact, the consultant said to me. I said to her, I don't think my body can take it. You know, I was, I was on my knees anyway, you know, physically and everything, and just carried a baby and all that kind of thing, bled all through the, way the pregnancy. Sorry, guys. And, um, and she said, no, you will be amazed what a body can take. And I think I am proof. You know, I, I am actually held together with pins and things, <laughs> literally and everything. But, <laughs> you know, I'm not quite as healthy inside as I appear outside, but it just shows your body can take a hell of a knocking mm-hmm. and come through it eventually. It took about 10 years for me to recover, I think, but, yeah.
0: And your kind of, marriage was, was beginning to fade a bit by this time, and you were wanting to keep expressing yourself, making music, taking up the guitar again, mm. going to singing lessons.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I picked up a guitar, 50 odd, you know, sat at the kitchen table, you know, thumb out, going, ee, ee, My husband's like, oh my God, she's lost her marbles, you know, quite rightly in a way. But what he didn't know, he was 10 years younger than me, and I don't know if this made a difference, but <coughs> my mentors were sort of um, Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. And they taught me that life was to play with and you could do anything. And, and, you know, they were very egalitarian. All sorts of people came into their shops, you know. there were dwarves and prostitutes and working-class people. And it's very inclusive. So you never thought, I can't do it because I'm a girl or, you know, or you're in jury because I'm disabled or whatever. It's the wind. Oh, I thought they were saying, get off. <laughs> so, um... It's, yeah, not so the spirit,
0: it's not the spirit of McLaren, yeah, don't worry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, you know, when, whereas my husband is brought up in the Thatcher years more, you know, he was sort of emotionally brought up in the Thatcher years, which was all about working hard, earning money, buying a house, you know, getting a car. I was brought up in a time where you, you know, went to art school. and didn't know, I didn't even think I'd get through the three years. And people say, what did you think you'd do after art school? Well, after art school, I had no thought for what I'd do for art, after art school. Life was to be played with had so much time to experiment and fail and fail and fail. So when I picked up the guitar again, I said to him, look, I don't know if it's the guitar I'm going to carry on with, but just let me play around. You know, i just got a f- fire in me and I feel like it'll go somewhere. And of course, I never in a million years thought I'd a- either make a record <coughs> or be in a film or write a book when I picked up that guitar. But I knew if I played, and I don't mean played guitar, but played with life, something would come of it, you know, but he, he couldn't grasp that, he, he literally couldn't grasp it, a bit like when I was younger and I couldn't grasp the thought of being in a band, he, he couldn't get into that dimension, mm. um, and that was the split between us, <coughs> he thought I was mucking about, within three years, you know, I, I was doing stuff, I was playing, I was getting gigs in London, you mm. know, uh, he, he couldn't, he, he was not visionary, and I, I just do think that's in some ways, still not with us. I think Thatcher killed that in a way. Mm. I don't know to blame that one woman, but those times killed it in a way. That play with life, um, muck about. You know, every time Malcolm McLaren had to go to a, a bank meeting or something, he'd take a dwarf and a prostitute with him, all done out in you know S and gear, and he'd he'd wear red girl shoes. You know, if he went to the laundrette, you know, or Vivian, you know, he'd wear a ball ground or, or rubber dress, or everything we did, we thought, well, I've got something really boring to do. How can I make it fun?
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, go- I'm, going to fa- I'm, I'm, I'm going to fast forward a bit because we've got the, the, the year of saying yes and the year of saying yes means that you connect with Ari again, you go to New York, you play a, a few gigs with the new Slits, um, you decide no that's not for you, you want to do your own music and you do, you go out and you go on your music is this lovely kind of parallel because you use money from your grandmother to buy your first guitar and when your father died and left you some money, you used that money to get a lawyer and get you out of your marriage. <laughs> yeah. um, and then after that came uh, the, the, the film that you were in uh, fairly recently and the album, The Vermilion Border, which is terrific. Well all these amazing bassists. We can't even go into that. Maybe somebody will bring that up because I do want to open it up to the audience. Very last thing I'm going to say before we do open it up to the audience. Right at the end, the book ends in 2013 with this. It's you saying, made friends with men again through working with them, which is nice, kissed a few frogs, Surely not many more to go now until I find a prince. Well, at least no more nutters, please God. I've kissed enough of those. So where does 2015 find Viva Albertine?
1: Um, well, my mum died, which was massive. She died on the night of my book launch, which was huge. And, and my friend said to me, I wonder if that's you being launched as an adult. You know, not only is your book launched, but, you're, you know, it's not really until your parents have gone that you are launched as an adult. You know, because I kept saying, why did it happen that night? Why did it happen that night? And... Um, I don't know. I say I, I still believe in love, I say, at the end of that book, which actually I didn't really. But I thought I'd better put something a bit positive at the end there. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm not sure I believe in romantic love still. And that was, what, three, couple of, two or three years ago. Mm. And I don't even know if that's a bad thing. It's a bit, bit like giving up an oppressive religion or something. You know, I was brought up on pop songs. I, I believed every single word. Um, I thought I would find that big love. I thought, all oh, boys are going to be like John Lennon. You know, you can muck them about. And they'd come crawling back, <laughs> crying. And they'd love girls. And they needed girls. And, uh, you know, I, I was actually brainwashed, as so many of us were in those days. And I sort of looked for that big love all my life, you know. But the trouble is, possibly if I'd been a gentler sort of person, girl, it might have happened. But to be an artist and a woman... In those years, and even in these years, you know, it's not really conducive to a partnership like that.
0: Hmm. But more more albums, more films, more... Um, um...
1: Well, I'm writing another book. Okay. I didn't intend to, but one came pouring out. And then and it came pouring out, and I thought, oh, great, because that's the only way I like to create. I'm not going to make, you know, people get saying, oh, you've got to do another album, 18 months. No way. Am I, I'm not a careerist. You know, if I make an album, it's because I'm desperate to make an album. I may never make one again, you know. But um, and this book came pouring out, and I, and I thought, I'm just going to put it in the drawer for two days. I know Stephen King says put it in for <laughs> two months or whatever. But I cut it after two days, and I read it through, and it was shit. LAUGHTER <laughs> I'm sure Stephen King has that as well, by the way. I hope, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I'm sure he does.
1: Jeanette Winterson says, you know, if you put a a book in the drawer and it's shit, it's still shit when you take it out again. (laughs) 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 I don't think it gets better in those two months. So I was torn between the two of them. But now, so I'm I'm in the process now, sort of working hard on putting it together. I'm
0: going to open it up to the audience. We've got roving mics, so I can see one over here. We've got one over there. We've got about 10 minutes for questions, so we'll try and get through as many as we can. Stick your hand up. Second row, right in the middle here. We'll get a microphone to you. Thank you.
1: I've, I've um, I wonder, do you still have Vivian Westwood boots? I've still got three pairs. Ah. No, four pairs of Vivian Westwood boots. I mean, I, I, am audi- I sold a lot of my stuff at auction to fund my IVF attempts. <laughs> I sold Sid Vicious's jackets and his lyrics that he'd written and everything, but I did keep the Westwood boots. <coughs> For you,
0: good choice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, gentlemen, at the back, keep your hand up, please, and we'll get the <coughs> microphone to you. And if we can maybe get Sunday set up over here if there's another question over there. Say um, I love the band, but um, I wondered about the the great grapevine. I thought it's an inspired choice of a cover. How did it come about that you covered Heard It, it
1: Through the Grapevine? So Heard It Through the Grapevine was just one of the covers that we, we played in rehearsal. Um, and then I, I don't know how we, we um, Chris, I think, yeah, Chris Blackwell wanted, from Island Records wanted to find out what we were like in the studio. So it was really the first time we were properly in a studio, for, apart from the John Peel sessions. And we had a proper Jamaican reggae drama played with, you know, all the big, reggae guys and everything we were shitting ourselves because you know we hadn't even done the Dennis thing then and um we did it in one take it was absolutely brilliant full of life and you know it's still a still played in clubs all over all over the place but um Chris came in and said oh can you make Ari do it a few different ways because she did this one-off wild um vocal and we went over and over it but nothing beat that first go yeah so it was just a one-off and the tape hop mixed it so Hmm. you know we had Dennis Brown to mix it but he he actually didn't know what he was doing, so, so we we sacked him. <laughs> oh we're, God! We're,
0: we're, we're, were drugs involved in, in his in his you know, him, way yeah. of working and his way of working? I would have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great so. Yeah, great reggae musician though. Yeah. I, I mean, I spent the whole afternoon listening to the, the two Slits albums, the studio albums and uh, Vermilion Border, and the, you know the Slits albums. Uh, Vermilion Border is a great album as well, but they do stand up. They yeah. sound very modern. They sound we very totally fresh. Yeah. They just haven't aged at all. No, haven't aged. A at lot time. of punk records have aged quite yeah. badly.
1: The thing is, we weren't punk. In, a way. in yeah. a way, that's why we didn't get written about for so long, because there wasn't a genre. It wasn't until someone invented post-punk <laughs> that we had a sort of record store bin we could be put yeah. in. And uh, we were curious that we didn't get written about, because we knew we were like the most unusual thing that happened in the whole time of punk, but uh, yeah. Thank you. Hi, Viv. Hi. I enjoyed the book very much. Thank you. Um, who, if, if any, are your female influences musically today? My female today. influences today. Well, I tell you, if I was young today, I wouldn't be in a band, that's for sure. Because um, it's just become a business, like it was before I picked up a guitar. In, in a way, you know, so if, if I was a radical young woman now, I, I wouldn't be... Looking to musicians, um, I'd be looking to activists, or there's so many choices. I mean, when I was young, I thought I could either be a primary school teacher, or because I was watching Zed cars, I could maybe be a policewoman. But now my daughter, who's 16, thinks, oh, I could be a biochemist, or I could be a lawyer, or I could do Occupy London, or you know, the, the choices for a girl now are so huge. So why would you choose to be in a band, stand on stage, thrashing the same thing out every night? No, it's, it's not a radical way to express yourself anymore i don't think not in the first world i I think it's different in the third world
0: i think it still appeals to a few young people
1: i know it i know it appeals lots of things appeal sweets appeal drugs appeal but it's not radical
0: sir Uh, yeah it it actually links i suppose into into what you're answering to that one Mm. um you talked about the internet now providing some form of challenge but Bearing in mind the Thatcherite idea that you've got to have some kind of career, you've got to have some kind of direction, when you're leaving school, you're already earmarked towards something. I mean, Mm. when I left school in Hackney, I didn't have a clue, and most of us didn't have a clue what we were going to do. But, I mean, that's impacted upon music and and the lack of challenge and the lack of questioning in in most music nowadays. Can we actually achieve that again? Is there something that needs to happen to actually achieve no, I th- that I think
1: it's, it's sort of something that can't be seen now. I, I think there's a different model, because you know, when, when you think back to the 70s, everything was, was very binary time. You know, black and white telly, the Stones or the Beatles, whatever, you know, male, female. That's all being blurred now, and I think it's very interesting the way... It's, it's more of an Eastern sort of model of multifaceted. You know, there's lots of things going on, lots of things going on underground. You, you don't have to kick a door down or spit or shout to be heard so much. You you work away, I mean, I think they're quite diligent, this young generation, and I'm very interested, you know, in 20, 30 years' time, if I'm sitting around, to see what they've built, because I think they are working hard, but not in a big, obvious, shouty way, and I I think that's interesting, and people often think, oh, they're not rebellious, because they're not, so visual so so you know audible and everything but I think they are I think they're very very conscious I think they're very conscious of the world globally that we weren't we were all little tribal you know don't like that music they like any music and so in some ways it appears bland but I I just think it's they're, they're more holistic and inclusive and aware and I think it'd be interesting yeah but I don't think music itself is a very radical route in the first world
0: um, thanks. I think that's all we've got time for. Vid's going to be signing in a tent next door, um, as far as I know. Tent next door, I think. Um, write the next book. Yep. Please come back to Edinburgh and see us again. There will Thank be you. no spitting. I promise you. The Albertine. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Ian.